Welcome to the Draw Shops Get Genius Podcast, where we talk to today's business influencers to pick their brain and pull out their genius. It's time to get genius. Hey guys, welcome to another Get Genius episode. Today we're going to talk about lawyering. <laughs> we're going to talk about law and internet law and all the things that you might not be thinking about, especially if you have an internet business. And uh, we're talking to Richard Chapo. He's been a lawyer for over 24 years, worked with some extremely well-known people, and he's quite well-known as an internet business attorney in Southern California. His philosophy is to proactively position his clients to minimize their potential exposure to lawsuits, which you might not be thinking about it, but can be quite risky and and great if you are in the internet business. There's so many laws and they're changing all the time. And there's so many things that we do that we think is okay. Um, If you're a blogger, if you... um, promote a bunch of stuff online. If you have a website that's talking about other products, I mean, there's so many different things to look out for. So we talk about this in, in the interview and kind of some of the things that, uh, I'm curious about. Um, and there's so many different businesses that you might not think about that are at risk. And it's a, it's a good way to take a look at yourself and, and your internet presence. So um, what he does basically is provide advice to his clients as, as large as multinational corporations and as small as hobby bloggers, mom bloggers. And, um, you know, his goal is to eliminate potential problems before a lawsuit is filed. So his goal is to get you protected before that happens. And if it does happen, well, then he can help you out with that too. He's amazing. He's versed in a variety of internet laws, including the DMCA, Communications Decency Act, uh, Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, as well as FTC compliance guidelines, state privacy mandates, um, recurring billing laws, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I'm sure in some of those things that I mentioned, you might be going, oh, we, we do that. We have to worry about that in our business. So hopefully you'll get some insight to that. And of course, if you have more questions, he does free consultations. So uh, we have all of his information in our blog post show notes, and he'll talk about it on the interview as well. Super cool guy. I feel really stoked to get to speak with him and you'll find out some of the cool people he's worked with during the interview. Enjoy. Hello, Richard, and thank you for being here today. Well, thank you for having me on. Well, I think we're gonna we're gonna talk about some good, important stuff today. <laughs> um, all about all about internet law. Um, possibly, I would love to talk about some startup strategies and some you know answer some questions that I think some of our listeners might be having in terms of. Um, joint ventures, starting up businesses, how to protect themselves, and you're the guy. So, thank you for thank you for letting me pick your brain and get it all out. <laughs> sure, sure. No, it's my pleasure. It's uh, obviously we have a very entrepreneurial uh, country, and in fact, the world. So, it's certainly a lot of questions people have. Um, you know, and a little bit of planning up front goes a long way. Um, you know, to preventing problems down the line. So, yeah, definitely absolutely. Worth talking about. And um, unfortunately, for a lot of people, they don't realize that they needed a plan until after something happens. So I'd like to talk about how to get people, you know, prepared, Um, not necessarily that something's going to go wrong, but in the event that something does, that they're protected 
But before I jump into that, um, can you kind of give us a, a brief background of your experience and why this became your thing to do and, and why you love doing it? Uh, sure. Uh, let's see. I was born in uh, Oklahoma, of all places. Ended up uh, moving to California early on. Uh, thank goodness. And uh, <laughs> was raised in California. This was definite, definite upbringing. But uh, raised in California and uh, went to law school here and became an attorney in 1992. So I'm uh, getting up there in years. But uh, uh, originally worked with a litigation firm uh, that focused primarily on complex litigation, uh, complex contractual issues, those kinds of things. Burned out in 1999 and went to the logical place that everybody would go when they burn out, which was uh, Siberia for a year. Yeah. And I uh, taught in Siberia and then came back and um, had a friend who had become a CEO of one of those initial uh, internet companies that were popping up right around then as the internet you know, started to kind of evolve into a commercial medium. And um, most of the law in the area was completely unsettled. And so um, I started helping them out and it became a, an interest to me. And I've been working in it ever since then, work with uh, small businesses, everybody from, you know, individual bloggers up to, you know, dating sites and multinational publishing companies. Um, and it's just you know, kind of been interesting to watch little tiny, tiny businesses with unique ideas that would never work in the brick and mortar world, you know, blossom on the Internet yeah. and, um, you know, become successful, powerful people. Yeah, it's it's pretty exciting. And you get to see, you know, so many a variety of businesses all online. So that that's awesome. Um, what would you say, though, kind of sets you apart from other attorneys that, that, that are doing something similar to what you're doing? Uh, probably two things. One, I've owned my own internet businesses as well as brick and mortar businesses. So I have uh, kind of an understanding of some of the things you know that uh, people who are starting up businesses uh, tend to face and some of the questions they have. Uh, and then when I left complex litigation, um, you know, because I was burned out, I really rethought how I would approach things. So I tried to be very client friendly. Um, most of my clients, you know, would say I don't act like a, an attorney. I don't talk down to clients or anything of that sort. And I try to come up with flat fee billing situations for clients so they know exactly what it's going to cost and they don't, you know, have to worry about all of those things. Um, so I'm very informal. Uh, I probably get criticized by their attorneys for not being, prof <laughs> being professional enough, but I'm not a wingtip, you know. Uh, three-piece suit wearing individual. This is not my thing right. anymore. Um, so I really try to focus with my clients on being proactive. Uh, the goal isn't to uh, win a lawsuit if it's filed. The goal is really to try to avoid ever getting sued or ever running, you know, into violations with government requirements and what have you. Right. And uh, you know, early on, it was a fairly simple process. It's getting more complex by the day as governments try to reclaim their territory online. Um, but that's a general approach. A little bit different than what other attorneys do. Yeah, and it seems like you know there's so many things that you have to look out for because there's so much changes all the time with with businesses online and just everything with being online. It seems like the laws are changing a lot too, so you have to be like pretty current all the time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the problems that we're seeing now is um, you know we, we always think of it as the World Wide Web, um, and we're really sort of evolving to a, a scenario where it's not going to be worldwide anymore. It's going to be um, divided into economic areas or, or into just, um, you know, areas based on borders. So, for instance, uh, the EU is issuing a new privacy regulation uh, that will go into force in May 2018. And it's um, what's called an opt-in um, regulation. And what that means is before you, you obtain any privacy information from anybody, any kind of personal information, including just their IP address, you have to get consent from them. 
So if you go to a website, something will pop up and it will say, you know, here's all these things that we do with your information. We want to collect your information. And then you, the person who's visiting has to check a box agreeing to that or you cannot collect their information. Uh, there's some exceptions to that, but it's it's that type of business model. Now, if you move to the U.S., of course, and you think of Facebook and Google, their whole business model is based on, you know, consuming as much personal information as right. they can <laughs> and then monetizing it, you know, and that's, that's the whole model. Um, and the U.S. is what's called an opt-out um, jurisdiction. So they can do that legally unless you really you know go through a number of steps to to make it clear that you don't want that done so then the question for businesses is well you know how do they comply with both um, both areas and uh, you know right now it's kind of up in the air and there's a lot of gnashing of teeth um, you know trying to figure out how how do you address those issues some countries like Russia um, and China they will often now require that if you're going to collect information on their citizens that you have to maintain servers in their country and, you know, you can play the ominous music behind that. Um, yeah. So, you know, so LinkedIn, for instance, for a long time, you can't access it through Russia because they refused. Whereas Google and Yahoo capitulated and, you know, so you can see um, those search engines in those countries. And, you know, you have all these different laws being passed. So you're absolutely right. It's being updated all the time. You know, and there's there's really risk analysis now. Um, to be quite honest, um, it's almost impossible to comply with every law. Um, if you wanted to, I mean, it's just, yeah, I can imagine. Well, I think about like you were mentioning a blogger. So what are, you know, bloggers tend to put out a lot of personal information. Um, and I wonder sometimes can somebody that they're talking about come out and sue them, you know, different, I would imagine there's, there's laws out there that they can do that, you know, defamation of character, or they didn't, he didn't quite say my name, but still I know, you know, everybody who knows this person knows he's talking about me. I, you know, you just hear about things like that. What, how do you protect somebody who's a blogger, who's just trying to share information? Well, defamation. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Defamation would be the key uh, element of that. And it just sort of comes down to, you know, the basic elements of defamation are you causing harm to, harm to somebody's reputation and is truth of defense. Um, sometimes you can argue that it's, uh, you know, somebody's expressing an opinion, um, with most bloggers, you know, what I tell them initially is, well, let's look at what you're doing, see the type of content that you have, and then really you have to explain the risk and say, you know, if you're going to you know, go about criticizing all of these people, you know, there is a likelihood that you could be sued for defamation. There isn't any way to stop a defamation lawsuit. You can obviously win it at trial. Right. Um, but you know, uh, there's certain risks out there. If you go out there and start ripping people right and left, you know, that's just a risk. If you're, uh, you know, a Breitbart or somebody like that, you know, yeah. and you're writing yeah. these things that are a little outlandish, you know, that's just part of the business model. And you have to understand that. And if possible, you know, try to insure against it or, or you know, take whatever steps are necessary to, to buffer that. And, you know, sometimes it goes horribly bad. I, I, the site just escaped me, but they had the Hulk Hogan uh, trial over his sex tape and, you know, wiped out, you know, a site or two, yeah. uh, who had published the content. And, you know, that's unfortunately, sometimes that's just the way it goes, but that's also a brick and mortar issue. You know, if you were to go out and say something nasty in the newspaper about a competitor or something of that sort, you know, I understand John's, you know, a child molester or something of that sort, and it's not true. Well, you know, you're going to get sued and you're responsible for what you say. Um, with the web, the one interesting aspect of that, that, that well, there's two interesting aspects. Um, the first is anonymity, as, as we all know, you know, yeah. God forbid, God forbid you scroll down and read the comments of <laughs> many, <laughs> many sites, you know, people say horrible, horrible things. Yeah. A lot of it because they're anonymous. 
Right. Um, in some some countries, they're getting rid of that. So in China, you can no longer be anonymous. If you if you're providing information on Chinese sites, you have to provide your real information, your real identity. Um, in the U.S., there's still anonymity, but we're, what we're seeing is um, kind of an erosion of that when it's related to other sites. So uh, there's a, a law called the Communication Decency Act, and Section 230 of it says that a website cannot be held liable uh, for any kind of claim that's based on the publishing of another person. So um, I worded that poorly, but basically the idea is defamation. So if somebody comes on your site and defames somebody else, um, you know, the site itself is not liable for that. However, the person can obviously be sued. So where this comes up with is you think of Yelp, Yelp reviews, uh, things of this sort. So if somebody goes on to Yelp, I go on to Yelp, and I write a horrible review about your podcast, and I say all this stuff that's just completely untrue. Uh, in the U.S., you cannot sue Yelp for that. You could sue me. Uh, but you're also going to have to get through Yelp to identify me, and it becomes this long uh, slog, right. and it's, it's very, very difficult. Um, well, that Section 230 is under attack now, and they're they're really trying to trim it back. And so the question of anonymity and what value that will have um, is probably going to change, you know, in the next five to ten years. And anonymity online may become a thing of the past. And you know, as far as people trying to be, you know, semi-civil to each other, that's probably a good thing. But you know, there's also the question of, you know, if, if anonymity has gone, um, you know, political uh, issues with that, um, you know, all kinds of things. Employers looking at what employees are saying, um, you know, all those types of issues are going to become front and center. So, yeah, it's definitely a, a changing medium and a concern. Yeah. You know, we talk about a lot about marketing on this show and, you know, a lot of marketing is is telling a story and a lot of branding is, you know, bringing that personal side to what it is that you do in your business and why you do it. And for a lot of people, they, they're, they're in their business because of some, you know, hardship in their life, something emotional that, uh, they felt broken down by and they've now built themselves up or, you know, a big problem that they've had that they've been able to solve. And a lot of times that has to do with somebody else in their life. So it could be, you know, uh, uh, somebody talking about selling something to do with relationships. And so they're talking about an ex-spouse or somebody, you know, talking about how they felt um, they were able to build the business after having no confidence because their parents were abusive and, and then things like that. For people that want to share their story because it benefits the business and gets people, you know, connected to them and, and makes them relatable what are ways that they can protect themselves so that it doesn't come back to haunt them? Or even if it's inevitable that it might, what, how can they protect themselves? Right. Well, truth is always a defense to a defamation claim. And again, we're still really talking about defamation. Um, so you have that advantage. Um, obviously, you know, beforehand lining up the evidence that you would have that it is, in fact, truthful is, is something that you would want to do. Um, you know, and that's that's really the aspect for it. it from a, a financial prospect of paying defense costs and, you know, settlements or judgments if they should happen, you know, insurance is what you want to look at. Whether they're going to cover defamation or not is something that can be tricky. The problem being that many insurers are going to look at it as, you know, an intentional act uh, or at least try to make that argument. So you have to be very careful and make sure that you would have coverage for that. Going ahead and forming, you know, a business entity or something of that sort for, you know, your, your blog your site or wherever you're building your brand probably isn't going to have 
you know, much of a beneficial effect because the claim against you would be that you are stating this, you know, that you're, you may have this business over here, but you know, I'll give you an example. So let's say we're in a retail shop um, and I have one employee and we have the world's most annoying customer come in and says horrible things to the employee and the employee turns around and punches the customer. Okay. Well, that's assault. Uh, so am I as the business owner liable for that? No, the business is liable for it. So the corporation would, or LLC, whatever you have, would protect me personally from being personally liable for that. Um, and because it's an employee that's doing it. Now, if that same customer comes in and I'm the owner and I start talking to them, they annoy me and offend me and I punch them, you know, am I, is the business and again to protect me? A little bit, but their claim is going to be that I acted as an individual um, you know, and punch them and therefore I should be personally liable. So that's the problem that you run into with websites when you're building a personal brand. If you start saying things that give rise to liability, um, you know, on a personal level, um, certainly an argument can be made that you should be held personally liable for it. So it, it really comes down to risk analysis and sitting down, seeing if you can account for it financially, see if you have evidence in place to try to uh, rebut any defamation claims. Um, and try and address, you know, those types of issues right. uh, beforehand. And sometimes I'll be honest with you, sometimes you don't. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes, yeah. sometimes you need to rethink the, th the strategy and sometimes you do. The other element of that is how comfortable are you with risk? I have some clients, they're very comfortable with risk and it's just part of doing business. I have other clients who, you know, they don't want any risk. And so we do everything possible to mitigate it and bypass, you know, certain monetization strategies and things of that sort that you, they just don't want anything to do with. Right. So if, if, somebody came to you with, um, you know, any kind of online startup idea. Um, uh, maybe it's, maybe it's an app. Um, maybe it's, you know, we want to, this is the type of, uh, type of things we want to sell on our site, whatever it is. Do you go through that and, and talk about like in a consultation, is that what happens? And they, you come up with, here are the possible risks that could happen. And then here are the ways that you can, whether it's insurance or whatever it is to protect yourself as, as best you can. Typically, yes. Typically, it, you know, it depends on when they come to me. And the first thing we actually discuss usually is uh, the ownership structure, you know, who's involved in the project, yeah, um, th things of that sort. The biggest concern, uh, and for a lot of people who've started businesses before, you know, they probably are unfortunately familiar with this, is you have the zombie partner. Um, if there's no documentation in place, such as an operating agreement for an right. LLC, um, you know, you, you can get down the line and one of the founders stops working or, you know, develops a drug habit or does whatever uh, and becomes useless. And if you don't have an agreement in place, you know, you can go into court and bring a lawsuit to try to remove that person. It's incredibly expensive. And you end up with a judge who knows very little about your business making decisions that are going to have a you know massive effect right. uh, on the viability of the business. So most people don't want to do that. Um, and so you end up with a partner that, you know, the other other owners just kind of ignore and yeah, they send them a check and, you know, hope nothing, you know, goes too bad with that. Um, so trying to plan for that up front is kind of something that we first look at. And then the second thing would be, yeah, you know, what are the risks that, that are obvious to the, the startup idea? Um, personally, I actually like to see it farther down the line. Um, a lot of people have all kinds of ideas about starting a business. And then when they get into the actual nuts and bolts of building the app or building the the um, you know side or whatever it is, you know they start making different decisions, uh, and so I'd rather kind of see it farther down the line when it's closer to actually being a real entity, right? Uh, you know, a real property, and then at that point, though, yeah, absolutely, we associate, take a look at the risk, figure out you know where the biggest problem areas are, and then yeah, try and plan for it. 
do you ever work with people that they have a startup they might be they might be so far along they're still kind of you know uh, maybe it's developing technology um and they're you know still early in in the stages of developing it and they want to bring on um they want to raise uh, do capital raise and they want to give out equity do you help with structuring that I actually outsource that. Uh, the reason okay. being, yeah, the reason being is uh, SEC laws. You know, once you get into securities issues, securities are the ownership position in the businesses. Yeah, and there, there are all kinds of uh, intricate rules that go into how that can happen and not happen. Quite frankly, a lot of people violate the rules. Um, but I actually outsource it to somebody who specializes in that, just because that's an area where you want to stay on top of the court developments. You know, recent decisions coming down that are going to change things. So, for instance, crowdfunding. Uh, you know, and a lot of these issues, they're brand new in the securities uh, industry. And so there are all kinds of questions about, well, you know, what's legal, what's not legal. Frankly, most of them haven't been answered. Um, and so as these new decisions come down from the courts, it takes the courts three to five years after something has happened uh, for them to start issuing decisions. Because what happens is, is you have a dispute, the dispute goes to trial, the trial results in a verdict one way or the other. Then the parties have to decide if they want to go through the expense of appealing. Uh, and if it's a new area of law, they, they often will. Um, so they appeal. The appeal takes another year and a half or two years uh, you know, to get up and get heard and then a decision to be issued. And sometimes they issue a written decision, which becomes binding law for that jurisdiction. Uh, so it may be a state or a federal district. Uh, and sometimes they don't issue um, a published decision. They'll just do a private decision. And the private decision doesn't have any effect, which causes the attorneys to grind their teeth because then it, it doesn't tell you what the law is going to be and how the courts are going to interpret it. So you have to go through this whole process. Um, and so it takes some time. Uh, so in areas such as securities, um, you know, you, you really want to go with somebody who specializes in those areas because you can really trip it up. And if you do, uh, the lawsuits are massive. Yeah. Um, so, so specialization in securities and funding is definitely an area that I recommend. You know, um, one thing that we've noticed with um, our business, with the Draw Shop, is there's a lot of, um, with with startup businesses or smaller businesses, it's really not much of an issue. But when we're working with, like, you know, bigger corporations, um, there's, like, there's like sometimes, you know, a three-month wait before you can actually do business with them because they want to see that you have different kinds of, you know, insurance in place. They have to go through procurement. They have to go through all these different legal things, you know. And, and really, we're just, you know, kind of an agency that makes videos. But <laughs> but it's interesting. What are some, like, what's some advice that you have for people that are providing a service? They, they still are an online business because they're attracting their customers online. Um so they're kind of that blend of brick and mortar, but also online. What is your advice to make sure that they've got everything in place so that when something like this happens, they've got everything lined up? Right. Well, you're going to run into two issues. And, uh, you know, you've certainly mentioned one, which is uh, particularly the larger the client that you're dealing with, the more they're going to have a legal department or they're going to have an outside attorney who's looking to protect them. And they're going to have all kinds of requirements, as you mentioned, the insurance. Um, what they're typically looking for is uh, you know, a certificate from your insurer uh, to identify and defend them. Um, should you do anything that gives rise to liability? I'm actually dealing with this right now with another client. Um, what that basically means is um, if you think of contracts, you think of the boilerplate that nobody reads except for attorneys, um, there's usually a clause in there, the indemnity uh, provision. And what indemnity is, is it basically says, okay, if we get sued uh, because of something that you produced in your service, 
Um, so let's say you make a video and somebody sues your client saying hey, that video violates our copyright, regardless of the merits of it, because of the contract, your agency would be responsible for paying for the defense fees of the client as well as any judgment or settlement. Right. Obviously, obviously you don't have that money. Right. And so, well, some most don't. And so the way you deal with that is insurance. So then that, that large company is going to want to see a certificate from the insurance um, company saying, yes, we will cover this. And so you go through those steps. Uh, dealing with larger clients is annoying. <laughs> I'll be completely honest with you. And it is for attorneys too, to go through 85 different meetings to get somebody who can make a decision. Um, but you know, if you're going to deal with clients in, in that sort, particularly from a service perspective, you need to understand that, okay, once you get your proposal out there and they're interested and you, you want to get that contract out there immediately and start looking at it, uh, the larger the client, the more they're going to force a contract on you. And you need to understand, you know, that when they do that, that contract is written tilting the uh, business environment in their favor. Uh, and so you want to look at those clauses and make sure you're not agreeing to something that, um, frankly, you can't, you can't come through with. Uh, and you will see that a lot for smaller clients, you know, I, <laughs> Being as old as I am, I still like written contracts. Yeah. Um, but you you can do you know terms and conditions on your site. Uh, if you do terms and conditions, you know the keys to make sure that they're compliant with um, you know the relevant internet legal standards. The days of just using a generator or you know copying them from another site are long gone um, because services and sites have become unique. A dating site is much different than a social media site, which is much different than you know a publishing site or something of that sort. Um, so you want to have custom terms, and you can really um, limit the risk to those terms. Um, well, I can imagine the, the risks with dating sites. <laughs> right. Well, an interesting thing that happened was um, you know we have these debates about the United States. Supreme court and they're over, always over hot button topics like abortion and rightly so um, but one of the big issues with the supreme court is do we have a conservative um, majority of justices or a liberal majority liberal majority tends to give more rights to individuals and conservative justice uh, tend to be more business friendly so in 2011 they issued a decision in a case called at mobility versus conception and in that case what they said was businesses uh, for the first time in perhaps 100 years could include arbitration clauses in their agreements with consumers and with other businesses, and they could force those people into arbitration instead of going to trial. Oh. And this is a huge decision. Yes, it's a major decision. Uh, and just so listeners understand, in trial, you have a jury of your peers, and you know that's great. One of the problems with peers is they tend to have an emotional reaction to situations. So one of the famous cases was the hot coffee McDonald's case. Yes. Um, where, yes, well, so that case was actually not as bad as most people think. McDonald's did, you know, heat the coffee up massively. It was literally burning hot and the woman received burns. Um, but the jury awarded her $3 million, I think, in damages which is a wee bit excessive, um, and but it was an emotional response, and you can understand why. Right. In an, in an arbitration, there is no jury. Instead, you're listening, you're presenting your case to either a retired judge or an attorney who's familiar with the field. And so emotional arguments tend to get rejected, um, and you tend to get a, a smaller judgment if you are liable, and they also tend to be more business-friendly. So you can make a technical legal argument based on, for instance, the boilerplate in your terms and conditions of your website, and whereas, you know, a jury is, you know, all, half the jury's fallen asleep after five minutes of that presentation, a, a retired judge or an attorney will not. And they'll understand, you know, the elements of that, that argument a bit better. So you have a much better chance of prevailing. Um, the secondary part of that Supreme Court decision was that um, they also allow you to now uh, force 
consumers and businesses to waive their class action rights. So this is particularly important for the internet. So if you think about when you use the internet and you purchase something, how much do you pay? Um, typically, you're going to buy something for, you know, certainly let's say, you know, under 100 bucks or 500 bucks, each individual transaction, whatever you do, you might buy clothes or something of that sort. But you're not buying, traditionally, you're not buying products for 30 grand or something of that sort. Um, so if you have a problem with that product or that service or something of that sort, um, well, let's exclude services, but let's just focus on products. Um, so if you, you have a problem with that product, let's say you pay 600 bucks for it, are you going to go file a lawsuit over that? Probably not. It doesn't make a lot of financial sense. Maybe you go to small claims court. Maybe you don't. Typically, you're going to complain. You're going to write a nasty review somewhere. Go to your credit card company, try and get a chargeback, something of that sort. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the beauty of the Internet. You have already have some insulation there. Um, one area where that blows up, though, is a class action lawsuit. So a class action lawsuit is typically 5,000 or more people that have the same complaint about a product or service. So if I put a toaster out and the toaster is defective, and every time people touch it to you know push the toast down, uh, it shocks you. Um, and I sell a million of these toasters. Well, in a class action lawsuit, you know, five hundred, you know, five hundred thousand people or whatever get together and sue me. Now they can hire a law firm because it's the cumulative damages that are involved. Right. So instead, so instead of it being forty bucks, you know, per individual, now you're looking at a much larger number because it's a group. So in the AT and T mobility case that the Supreme Court decided. They said that you can also force people to waive their class action rights. And so in your terms and conditions, you can include a clause where they're forced to do that. And if you do that, what happens is you're put back into the position where, you know, instead of people bringing this one large lawsuit against you, now they have to bring the little $40 claims for their toaster. Mm. The vast majority of them are never going to do that. Right. And so you mitigated. Yeah. yeah. So, so this is the reason why if you use Apple products, for instance, uh, you log on to iTunes or whatever it is, and they're always requiring you to read and agree to their terms. Right. Uh, it's because they're updating those documents all the time to reflect oh, recent sure. court decisions. Yeah, I'm sure. Right. Well, so let's talk. Let's talk social media, because there's people either who do it for their clients that they're they're building platforms for them, or people are doing it for themselves, or they're hiring somebody to do it. So. What's the what are the risks in because, you know, there's people that are like, we can get you 60,000 likes in two days, you know, things like that. What are the risks in in building your platforms on social media? So, the, well, there are a number of different risks. I mean, obviously, defamation, you need to be careful what you're saying. Right. Um, one of the one of the biggest risks probably to start with that most people don't really think about is control. Um, so social media obviously plays an important role. And, and, you know, should you go out and build up, try and build up followings uh, and go viral and all these different things? Absolutely. 100%. Nothing I'm going to say after this counters that. However, you need to think through the process. Um, social media platforms, you have no ownership. You don't own anything on that site. You know, the content that you submit, you do own, but it's not really valuable uh, in the sense that you would ever use it again or something of that sort. Um, but what's really important to understand is you don't understand, you don't own your followers. Mm. Um, so you, you cannot take your followers based on the terms and conditions of most of these sites. You cannot transfer your followers to your site. So you can't take a list of your followers and create, you know, a newsletter list on your site and just input all those people that's violating those terms. Um, so while you're building this social, you know, following and hopefully it's huge and it's going great and everything else, you should always be trying to, uh, create promotions and things of that sort that will get 
a percentage of those people to move over to your site or to a medium that you control so that you can go ahead and actually have them uh, you know, on a list that you can always mail to. I mean, the email list, a lot of people laugh at them, but they're still valuable. Yeah. Um, but if you can get people on an email list, so let's say that you have, let's do easy math. You know, you have 200,000 followers on, across your social media accounts and you do all these promotions, you know, I'll give away a free book or a free coaching session, whatever it is. You know, if you go over here and you join my, you know, email list and let's say 100,000 people go join your email list. Okay. Well, one day, uh, you get a complaint from somebody or Instagram, let's say your big followings on Instagram, Instagram gets a complaint that one of your photos is violating, you know, a brand's copyright or something of that sort. And Instagram reacts by closing your account, which they can do. Right. You have no recourse. You right. have none. Okay. You just lost those two of the hundred thousand followers or, you know, whatever it was, but you still have your email list. You can still hit that email list. Um, so it's important to always try to, you know, keep that in mind and try to have some kind of a shift there so that if the worst happens, um, you know, that you, you're going to be in good shape or at least solid shape. You're not going to be completely wiped out. Now, the reason this is important is most people are probably thinking, well, I would never go out and violate somebody else's copyright. And, and that's great, but that's not the way the law works. So the law, the key law uh, is the DMCA, it's the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. It was enacted in 1998. It's a federal law in the U.S., and the idea behind the law was to try to create an environment where sites could grow. Uh, if you think back to 1998, you know there was no Facebook. There was, you know, most of the commercial startups were tiny. Yeah. I think Google. I think Google was still called Backrub. Um, <laughs> you know, so so they they gave these sites immunity, uh, and in exchange for immunity, they have to follow a compliance. They have to follow a compliance process. Part of that process is that um, they have to create. Uh, they have to designate a DMCA agent. And they have to put that person up on their site. And when somebody has a copyright complaint, they submit it to that DMCA agent. And that agent then, and this is key, they automatically have to take down the content. Oh. It's, there's no judgment. People get angry at Facebook and YouTube. Why did you take down my stuff? There's no judgment. It's the law requires them to automatically do it. Now, some companies do try to make a decision on it just because they have so much money. They don't really care if they get sued. Right. Um, but... You know, that, that's the way it's supposed to work. Another aspect of that law is that if a particular person using that site gets more than X number of complaints in a particular period of time, say three complaints in two years, that account has to be terminated. Oh. Yes. It's called the repeat infringer policy. And if it is not terminated, then that company becomes jointly liable for all the copyright infringement. Now, does it have to be... It, does it have to be a valid complaint? Or can it, it does. Yeah. It okay. Does. But <laughs> so I was going to say, people... I could see people just, you know, getting upset with each other. I'm going to do three complaints this, you know, from different accounts or I don't know. People get crazy. <laughs> oh, they do. No, yeah. they do. It's absolutely, it's a business model for some people. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing to understand is that, yes, it has to be a valid complaint. But remember, so when that complaint comes in, the site is supposed to automatically take it down, site or the internet connected app, whatever it is, it's supposed to automatically take it down. At that point, they then send an email to the person who has the account saying, hey, we received a copyright infringement notice from you or from you know somebody else for your account for this image. Uh, we've taken it down. Now, at this point, you can either file a counter notice with us presenting a legal basis as to why you know it's not copyright infringement. And at that point, you know if you do that, uh, we will then send a notice to the copyright owner and tell them that they need to either move forward with a copyright, federal copyright infringement lawsuit against you that's going to cost you $100,000 in attorney's fees to defend, or we can leave the content down. Yeah. And most people are going to say, you know, yeah. leave the content down. Well, exactly. that's, a, that's a successful and valid complaint. 
Interesting. I'm learning so much. <laughs> right. I, so I, it's, yeah, it's crazy. You know, it's it's one of those things. You know, you just have to be a little careful about. Fortunately, it doesn't happen a lot. And what we've seen is the bigger companies, the YouTubes and Instagrams of the world. You know, they now do look at the, at the quality of uh, uh, you know the validity of the complaint right. uh, because it was becoming a problem. Um, but I can tell you, I get a call at least once a month from somebody who's. You know, I had my Tumblr account for six years and they just closed me. And that's the reason. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's there's no recourse. There's zip. And people say, what about my rights? You have no rights on social media. It's not your business. Well, and uh, I know there's a lot of, um, you know, p there's people that have their business is is all about writing reviews for different companies and then earning affiliate fees on those review, you know, on those um, whoever purchases through their affiliate link. And I, I think and I know that's something that's been changing a lot, too, where you probably have to constantly update your and, and I'm not sure what it is. Is I don't know if it's your terms of service or what it is that you put at the bottom of your page, letting people know that this is what you are doing. Is that correct? Yes, it's uh, it depends on yeah exactly what you're doing. So let's say you have a, a blog and you write a review um, and you have affiliate links in it. What the FTC wants to see is you put a um, note next to those links indicating that hey i get paid if you click through and buy right um you know we've all been to the review sites where there's you know 500 treadmills reviewed and all of them are five stars <laughs> and they all link to amazon <laughs> you know and it, it's exactly a, and it's a joke right. you know, it's a joke exactly uh, well the yeah. problem with the ftc is they're supposed to look at what a reasonable person you know would interpret from a particular situation um but they don't they, they basically look at it from you know okay let's assume this person can barely breathe on their own and read you know, do they need a disclosure? So they're, they're to my opinion, they're, they go completely overboard. But in a perfect world, you know, if the FTC has its way, you know, every affiliate link on your site, every single one, even if you have multiple links in the same article, each one is going to have that disclosure. Right. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of the standard. Um, you know, and penalties are up to $40,000 per violation. Right. Uh, so it's, you know, it's significant. You're going to have legal fees defending it and things of that sort. Um, you know, how many sites are complying perfectly with all of those requirements? Pretty small number. Um, yeah. So, it's so it's, it's just crazy how the, how the world has evolved if you thought about what they were doing and what they were um, monitoring, you know, 20 years ago. <laughs> as they, no, no. And what it is today, it's just crazy. I mean, and, and even when the Internet first came out and people had a legitimate you know, blog on Blogster, whatever it was, Blogspot, you know, people or, the, or these little forums where people were actually honestly writing a review on something like, well, you know, here's the stroller I would buy or here's the diet product I like, you know, whatever it is. And it was actual real opinions. And then, uh, you know, it became, wow, we can actually make money off of these opinions. <laughs> no, so. absolutely. You're absolutely right. You know, the, the Internet is, you know, everybody talks about it being a disruptor environment. It really is. Um, and it's it's created such a, a, a different, you know, paradigm for people, uh, you know, to move forward and make money in right. ways that most of us could never imagine. I mean, the social you know, media influencer, you know, in the brick and mortar world, that was typically celebrities. Yeah. You know, actors and people of that sort um, were the only people that could do that. And now, you know, whether it's the health uh, industry or, you know, some other area, you see people coming up on Instagram. Um, you know, that have huge followings are on YouTube and what have you. Yeah. So the FTC is trying to, you know, balance the field. And I understand what they're trying to do. It's just, you know, they never run a business. And so, you know, they want they want all these hashtags included in tweets and things of that sort. And it's like, really? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, it's a bit and much. And the more and so. more people find loopholes, the more and more they start to come up with more laws. <laughs> right. You know, and it becomes a question of, you know, at, at what point, you know, it's it's like the warning on your mattress. Everybody knows there's a warning on your mattress. I can right. guarantee you probably nobody can read it. And, and it has, <laughs> you know, nobody can tell you what it says. And it has no effect. You right. know, if the whole if the whole purpose was to warn you against you know some horrible thing you could do with your mat, I'm a lawyer. I don't even know what it says. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, so what practical effect is it having? And that's why people, you know, become unhappy with the law. And in my opinion, rightly so, is instead of maybe some common sense approaches to situations. You know, we always try to pass laws on these things. And it's just, you know, it's just I give you an example of just how stupid it can be. Uh, revenge porn. I think everybody can agree. Revenge porn is a bad thing. Yeah. Revenge porn, just to be clear, is you date somebody, you have intimate pictures of them, you break up, you're pissed off and you go out and publish those photos of them to embarrass them and, and what have you. In California, they got where I am. The legislature tends to get righteous about these things. They enacted a law. Um criminalizing revenge porn, right? You know, you're in jail, something of that sort. Uh, the only problem was they were so clueless about what revenge porn actually was that when they enacted the law, they excluded selfies. Oh. <laughs> well, selfies make up 95% yeah. of all revenge porn because it's, you know, photos you're taking, you know, with your, your you know, your partner, um, you know, and it was pointed out to them and they were just, oh, you know, and so it took them another year before they could, you know, amend the law to reflect, <laughs> you know, hey, here's how it works. Right. Now, should there be penalties for revenge porn? Of course, you know, it's probably not the best example, but, you know, there's so many areas where they, they issue regulations that, um, you know, it, it's just madness uh, and it really just becomes kind of a joke. Um, so unfortunately the web isn't really escaping that we're kind of seeing, you know, as I said, the, the evil empire strike back now. Um, with a lot of these rules and regulations, and the FTC is certainly leading that charge. Crazy stuff. This is, I, I feel like I have like a billion questions because there's so many different types of businesses online. And I imagine with each one, there's their own set of risks, obviously. And you've absolutely. worked, working. Yeah, absolutely. If, if I could just mention something. I think yeah, please. Help. So um, these kinds of interviews with lawyers, you know, they, they tend to be a little scary, particularly if you've never heard of any of these things, yeah. if you're a listener. And so um, the purpose of this isn't to scare you. The purpose of this is to just let you know that there are issues out there. And so, it, you know, what would be best in your, your particular situation is, you know, go on Google, do a search for Internet lawyer, um, and they should return results for your area. Run those results through Yelp or something of that sort so you can see what other people have to say and you can pick out people, you know, a couple of people who look like they're competent. Most of them are going to give you a free consultation. Just go see the lawyer, show them what you're doing. And then the lawyer will say, well, you know, you have these different issues or maybe you have no issues. And I people call me all the time. They have no issues. Um, but, you know, here are issues you need to be concerned about. And then you prioritize them. And it's just like any other to do list for your business. Um, you know, where, you know, if there's a, if there's a major problem or major risk, you know, deal with that right now, uh, you know, and just work your way through it. it. The purpose of this isn't to suggest that people shouldn't start online businesses. Absolutely. You should, you should never let the law stop it unless you're doing something, you know, that's blatantly illegal. Um, you know, so that's, that's really the approach. So don't, I hope nobody takes this and gets, you know, concerned and says, ah, you know, <laughs> closing all my sites and right, you know, right. moving to Antarctica. Um, you know, just go take that step. 
And then, you know, you'll understand where you are. And if there are things you need to address, you know, obviously you want to find out about those things before you get sued uh, or before the government shows up. And then, you know, if there aren't things to address, you know, there'll probably be little things at least. And you can have, you know, kind of a priority list there and deal with them, you know, as, as the budget allows and what have you. And you just go through them. It's just like dealing with accounting. You know, I'm an attorney. I hate accounting. Um, I hate doing bookkeeping and things of that sort. But it's just part of the business and you do it and off you go. Um, so that would be the better approach with the legal issues that might affect your site. Um, but the important thing is just to understand, you know, a little bit of planning, even just a little bit of planning can really save you because a lot of your competitors probably have no planning. Right. And so if a gov- government agent or a lawyer is looking at your site compared to one of your competitors and your site looks to have some compliance, you know, or to certainly be moving in that direction, your competitor has nothing, you know, who are they going to go after? Right. Well, and that's the wonderful thing about having, you know, someone like you and especially like you. I've, you know, I've seen your testimonials. I know you work with incredible people like Pat Flynn with Smart Passive Income. And and all of these people that you've worked with have been with you for a long time, which is so, you know, says a lot about you because they they know that they you're there for them. You're you're fast, you're quick and you're you're knowledgeable. And that's, you know, really what you need, because we most of us entrepreneurs, we are not experts in this area. And so we rely on that corner man to, you know, keep us help keep us protected as as best we can. So that's awesome. Um, I don't even know if you how often if you take on new clients or anything like that, but I still would love you have so much valuable information with your site and everything. I'd love to send people um, to to learn more information. Sure, sure. You can always get me at uh, SoCalInternetLawyer.com, SoCal, like Southern California, uh, or you can look me up by my last name, Chapo, C-H-A-P-O. Um, it's uh, also, unfortunately, a moniker used by a large drug lord in Mexico, <laughs> now, now in jail. So if you do a search and you see all these FBI and DEA agents, that's not me. Um, but, you know, but if you that's be Richard Chapo, I should no, pop them. <laughs> Yeah, I wish I was, you know, had that kind of money, but without the risk, you know, that's a whole different business environment. Yeah, totally uh, different business. Well, you got arrested, so I'm hoping a lot of those listings will eventually fade away. But yeah, uh, yeah so, but no, I'd be happy to talk to anybody now for free consult. So just contact me, and I'll be happy to help you out. Wow, fantastic. I love it. Well, thank you so much. This is so cool. And uh, yeah, please take advantage of that. SoCalInternetLawyer.com. And Richard, thank you so much. This was awesome. Sure. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to today's Get Genius. You can learn more about The Draw Shop at www.thedrawshop.com, on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Your home for kick-butt custom whiteboard marketing videos. Your ideas come to life. Thanks for listening. Please share, comment, and make any suggestions for future genius guests. 